Welcome to The Next Journey, the adventure travel podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. I'm a prisoner of this hill. Welcome to The Next Adventure podcast. My guest today is neither sitting in opposite me in my studio and neither is he sitting in a lounge somewhere else on planet Earth. I actually have no idea what he's doing. All I know is that Mac McKenney, my guest, is so busy that, well, we've actually been talking for the last six, eight months, and I wanted to bring you this. I recorded this some time ago, and it was, it was such a compelling discussion we had together that I have, I have to bring it to you. Mac is an exceptionally talented logistics organizer for extreme conditions, mostly vehicular conditions, but not only vehicular conditions. He, for example, worked very closely with Ranulph Fiennes. Ranulph Fiennes is, I think without contradiction, could be called the world's greatest living explorer. He's, just not, he's not just an extreme explorer, he's a hyper-extreme explorer. And I have read his books, and they, are, they show an extraordinary talent and an extraordinary tenacity for success. Mac was his right-hand man, if you like, his logistics expert, and went with him, supporting him on several of his expeditions. But my discussion with Mac focused more about survival and preparation in extreme environments. And when I talk about extreme environments, I'm talking about the edge of extreme. Places where I have never been but might one day find myself in. And I, I really wanted to share this with you. It is an exceptional piece of survival advice, if you like, that I want to share with you. This podcast is sponsored by Zippo. Zippo, thank you very much for supporting our show. Did you know that Zippo don't just make those little, lovely little brass lighters? They also do separate inserts for the lighters. For example, my favorite is the butane burner. So now, I mean, the Zippo's already good in a wind. Now it's good in a hurricane because it's a pressurized, fill it with lighter gas, um, little, little butane burner. They're absolutely beautiful. They even make, and it's my new favorite fire lighter, is the Zippo fire lighter. It's natural pine coated in a kind of a paraffin wax. It's absolutely benign. And it, they make fantastic fire lighters. And because it's 100% natural, it, they just disperse. I, just, they're just very, very nice to use. And uh, they, of course, and their lighters, of course, are still made in the USA. So thank you, Zippo, for your support. Now, my interview with Mac actually starts with us talking about a, a television show that he was involved with, with himself, Paul Marsh, and some quite Tom Hardy, I think, was one of them. Uh, there was also the... I'll, I, will, I will let Mac tell the story. But we start right away with me complaining and ranting about Discovery Channel's habit of always overplaying their hard, always saying things that are far more than they really are, to the point where I think intelligent people look at it and say, y y you're talking crap, this is rubbish. You don't, 
I stop treating me like a seven-year-old. And that's where our discussion started. Oh, the hype? Oh, God, yeah. So, so you yeah, there, there was nothing really dramatic happened. No, so you guys would say, um, would be in an, in an environment, if they don't get to the river in time, they're all gonna die. <laughs> you know, and then the next episode, or even later in this, if they don't get in, they're all gonna die. And then you had that windstorm. Oh, that, yeah, that was for real. That, that and was then real. I thought, and he, and what the commentator said was, "Is a windstorm, and, and if they don't get in the cover soon, they're all going to die." And I thought, "Yeah, they're in trouble." Yeah. Now they're in trouble. Yeah. Now I'm worried for them. Because I, wa I was a bit concerned with the with the desert one because we were supposed to go and meet a lot more people, but because it's right out on the west of China, it's one of their auton autonomous regions. Yeah. So basically, there's three three areas of, of China that they basically they've nicked off other people. You've got Inner Mongolia, so that's all of it above the, uh, the, the, the Great Wall of China. So that used to belong to Mongolia. You've obviously got Tibet, mm -hmm. and you've got this Agur region right out on the western side. So most of them look more like Afghan-type people. They're, they're Muslims, they're not the Han Chinese, Buddhist-y types or whatever religion they have in, in mainland China. And so they, we had two government minders to watch everything we did. And we were supposed to see a lot more people. And they said, oh, no, no, that's no good. Can't talk to them. Because they might say something about uh, you know, the oppression of these people oh, by the course. Chinese government. Be, yes. And so really it was getting quite boring. So I thought, fit me. Well, I'd gone out and wrecked it. And we're going to do this, 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 and this, and this. And they go, no, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. So apart from the beginning bit where everyone got stuck, that's because the silly donuts wouldn't let their tires down, you know, and then <laughs> 10 minutes later, pump them back up again. We just sat there for hours. Hours, so actually the sandstorm at night was an absolute blessing because otherwise it oh, would have. Really oh dull. yeah, I was praying something would happen. I didn't know it was going to happen at three o'clock in the morning, when everyone's kind of sound asleep. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I, so that, that was that, good. That was good, and I thought uh, that was the only time I thought, yeah, this is this is a bit tough. That's not nice. That's you know, and, that, and I understood that there was a danger involved, and I appreciated it. But so many of the other we are going to die moments, they weren't we are going to die no. moments at all. Well. And the, the thing is, know, though, you are actually in an environment, particularly Siberia, where if you'd got your planning wrong and you hadn't got the right kit and you'd chosen the wrong vehicles and you didn't have the right local support, yeah, dying would have been very realistic very, oh, no, I, very yeah, quickly. No, I appreciate that. Would have no, made better no, television, probably. No, uh, <laughs> I, yes. I mean, I imagine minus 60, driving in minus 60 and then getting out of the car yeah. and having to live and do other things in yeah. minus 60. Yeah. There's, there's genuine risk involved. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, frostbite is, is measured in minutes. Absolute oh, really? minutes. Oh, yeah, minutes. Now, they were interviewing, I think it might have been on one of the YouTube clips or something, but they were interviewing Mikasalo. Yes. And it wasn't minus 60. It was only about minus 40 or so. And he'd been outside for three or four minutes. And he was going, crikey, you know, my nose, I can't feel my nose anymore. And he was doing this, and then they got the medic on him, and right, straight in. Straight in, And he'd only yeah. been in for a while. Well, bearing in mind, the Royal Marines stopped training at minus 30 because it's too dangerous for them to train at any colder temperature because the risk of a cold-weather injury goes up at that. exponentially. Yeah, massive risk above minus 30. And so, of course, we're operating at minus 40, 50, and minus 60. So this is way, way outside, you know, not, not you wouldn't call them Royal Marines Special Forces, but they're they're pretty damn close to special forces in what they can do and who the, the people that they are and what you know the training they've had, and so we're way way beyond that, you know. And so, you do I mean you did the logistics for the series, I, and you did the risk assessment as everything, well. You did everything. everything. The, the brief from the ad agency that dreamt it up. So basically, you've got an ad agency. They dreamt it up. 
they said to Discovery, if we, if we make this, are you going to put it on air? They said yes. So they went around their clients. Shell said, right, we'll pay for it and we'll say it's about our engine oil. We then found a, they then found a production company to film it, and there's only two really in the UK. It's either Top Gear, but that's all they do is Top Gear, or North One Television who do Fifth Gear. So they were the only other motoring choice to come in and film it. So right, well who's going to kind of make it happen? And that's when we got brought into the mix. So we had the money, we had the broadcaster and we had the people to film it. But the brief from the ad agency who dreamt it up was hottest, coldest, toughest, Russia, China, India. That's, yeah. That was it. Sort out everything. Absolutely everything. Vehicles, kit, Of which of those three, the hot, the cold and the... Uh, well, it should have been the highest, but that it, got canned. It, that got canned because you couldn't. Because yes. we couldn't get there because of Tibet and all the rest of it. So mm. we did the we did we did we called it the toughest, the jungle one. The jungle one, yes. Yeah, which so was the most difficult to plan, and which was the most risky for everybody involved? Oh, Siberia. Yeah, cold yeah. because of the cold. Just just because we as humans, I think they say we evolved from the the plains of Ethiopia or something. Mm. You know, genetically we're designed to cope with heat. You know, and more people have experienced extreme heat when they've been on their holidays. And basically, keep out the sun and just keep hydrated. You you can kind of, it's, it's a safer environment. We are not designed to operate at minus 60. We're not design, designed to really operate at minus 10. And so everything, you know, genetically, the, the, the makeup of our, you know, within cellular level. Yes. We're, we're designed to expel heat very well you know we okay. sweat well yes, and yes. all the rest of it <clears throat> right we, we we don't have the body fat we don't have the hair we don't even have the little capillaries to 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 pump blood right down to the very to the extremities the... yeah now inuits have evolved slightly differently apparently at the end of each of their little blood vessels they have an extra one of these capillaries really? oh yeah yeah so they do get more blood flow to the extremities now us as sort of lowland western types yes. <clears throat> more designed for the for the heat. No, we're, we're not designed for it. So you've got to think of absolutely everything to ensure that this body that's not designed to be there can cope. And of the three in terms of keeping the vehicles running, which was the most challenging to you know, mechanically? Probably the again, cold. The, probably the cold, the cold again. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, once those engines were on, you, you cannot switch them off. You have to keep them running 24 seven. Okay. And even to the point where we camped overnight with the reindeer herders and we were, you know, up on the mountain plateau, it did get down to minus 60. You know, most of the crew are in what basically looked like a scout tent. It, it wasn't double walled, it was just a thin layer of canvas, like a typical army, yeah. army tent yeah. with a wood burning stove in the middle of it. But of course, unless you kept that thing stoked continuously, any heat that was in there soon evaporated and disappeared through the walls. So yes, we had the engines running. But of course, there's the risk of a carbon monoxide mm. poisoning where you've got seven vehicles, you know, uh, five petrol and two diesel pumping out fumes. And if the wind changed direction, it sort of blowed right across the tent. Towards the tent. So, That's... of course, it's all <clears throat> carbon monoxide detectors, smoke detectors and the rest of it. Did um, you manage to think of that beforehand? Yeah. You did? Yeah, so we had all the detectors. But the other thing was, yes, the engine is running. That's all working nice and well. But what about the gearbox? There's There's some sort of heat permeating through the engine bay that's, keep the oil... that's kind of getting there yes but front diff that'll probably remain relatively warm rear diff well that's out on its own that's not going to get any heat you know nothing from from the engine is going to reach that nothing so every well we the most we left it was two hours absolute maximum before we up and down and up and down and up and down got got in the car we, we, me and paul slept in the cars he slept in his <coughs> what we called it the film car where the film crew were 
and I slept in the other car with the star, the star, the talent, the stars were, the star car. So yeah, so we kind of just laid out on the on the front seats, and then a little buzzer would go, right, that's it, up and down and up and down and up and down wow. to stop um, the fluids, you know, solidifying. Solidifying. Yeah. It wouldn't have been an idea to have built a small fire underneath the rear differential. The, the Russians do, yeah. When when things um, when things go wrong, but of course, if you've then got a fire, you've got to stoke the fire. Mm -hmm. The yeah, fire, obviously, you you put a fire <clears throat> near a fuel tank, rear, near, a fuel, <laughs> near a fuel tank, and there's rubber hoses and yeah, yeah. But that that is the lengths that they go to if it, if it all goes wrong. Right. Yeah, and they're out yeah. for prolonged periods and yeah. they can't move it. That's the only way to do it. And light fires under the engine, light fires under the gearbox, under the diffs. And the other thing is the shocks, absolutely solid. So oh, you have to keep them. Of course. You've got to keep them warm. So we had sort of like a almost like a sleeping mat material, but with a with a sticky backing to it. So that was wrapped round all the shocks. So picking the right shocks that we knew that could cope was very important. What they will, what some of the guys who are out there for long, long, long periods and operating and keeping the vehicle stationary for long periods, like if they're parked outside and they go to bed, you know, they don't want to be moving the car every two hours, every single night for sort of four months of the year. So they'll have electrical heaters around, wrapped around all the shocks to keep them warm. Batteries? Well, they're all, uh, you have to go for like a gel battery. Gel, yeah. Obviously two batteries, because anything like this that's doing ancillary work. Yeah, it's going to, yeah. And yeah, you don't want to, <clears> you, <throat> can't, you cannot afford efficient. that engine to stop at all. So fuel quality is as ropey as anything out there. Okay. It's an Arctic diesel, so it's already good down to minus 50, and it won't, you know, whereas ours will start waxing Just up get, at mm. minus 15 or something, mm. so yeah, minus 50. But it's, it's basically just like paraffin, it's of horrible, horrible quality. And also the, where you're getting it is a very, very low standard, so you literally could pick pebbles out of, a, out of the fuel tank. You know, there's all sorts of muck. Wow. Coming out of there, you know, big <clears throat> lumps of rust, big lumps of paint. And literally, I have pulled small pebbles out of, you know, because we pre-filter everything mm. before mm. it goes into mm. the tank. So it's things like that you've got, to, you've got to think of everything, because if that engine packed up, and then if you were kind of foolish enough to rely 100% on that keeping you alive, and you didn't have minus 60 jackets, minus 60 sleeping bags, tents, stoves, fuel, water, etc, 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 you're measuring your life expectancy in hours, not even days. So there's a lot to think about. There must be a process that goes through your mind when you're, when you, when you're saying, okay, this is the expedition that I'm, I'm, I'm setting up and there, there are certain risks and things involved. I don't know where I first learned the, 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 sort of the priorities. It was probably in the military and that was shelter, water, food. But there are sort of others. There's uh, accident as well. Okay. And so what I've basically coined is I call it the rule of three. Uh -huh. And you're dealing with three <laughs> minutes, three hours, three days, and three weeks. Okay? Okay. So your life expectancy, if you got it wrong and you're barreling across the mechanic alley or something like that, and you hit a whopping pothole and you flip your vehicle and impale your head, and there's blood pouring out of every orifice, your life expectancy is three minutes. Yeah. If you are in an extreme environment, and we tend to be talking extreme cold, but it doesn't have to be that cold. You, you throw in a bit of wind chill, and you could be talking Western Europe, Scotland, and you are in the wrong place with the wrong kit, i.e. shelter for your body. And I don't just mean tent shelter, I mean clothing shelter. Right. Your life expectancy could be three hours. 
So three minutes if you have an accident, three hours if you haven't got the right shelter. And your ne next priorities are water. The average person in average conditions will survive three, three days without water. Obviously, if you're in the extreme heat of Africa, then it's the desert, and you're working hard, <laughs> yes. you can dramatically cut that. If you're in a much more mild climate and it's quite moist and you're not sweating too much, you might be able to extend that to four, maybe five days. But you're going to be, you're going you know, to be, a, you're going to be a bad bit. You're not mm. going to be thinking straight, so any, you know, you're not going to be able to move very well. But yeah, average is three days, okay. and then finally, your priority is water, is food. The average person can survive three weeks without food. So three minutes, three hours, three days, three weeks. So that's kind of, so everything I think of, I have to base it on what are my priorities. So the least of my worries ever on any trip is how much, where do I, my camping equipment, my stove, my, 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 my food supply, anything. That's way down my list of priorities. Okay. Water's a pretty, pretty serious one. Yeah. Shelter gets a lot more serious because if you get that wrong, life expectancy is over pretty quickly, but the priority is do not stuff it up. Do not end up in a situation whereby you've had an accident. And so then that comes down to planning. So things like, am I and my team capable of operating in this environment? You know, are we gonna be able to negotiate this road, this track, this, this river without you know, it all going horribly wrong? Do we have the right training, the right skills, the right people to make it happen? Have I prepared my, have I chosen the right vehicle? And once I've chosen the right vehicle, have I prepared it properly? Have I decided that I'm going to put, you know, 15 jerry cans on the roof? I'm going to put roof tent, two spare wheels up there, high lift jack, and all of a sudden the whole thing is so top heavy that it won't take too much to flip it upside down. And so you have to kind of build in all of those factors to ensure that you don't have an accident. Do I take nice comfy chairs and a table? Or do I take an axle stand and a big, solid, secure piece of wood to support it? So when I am crawling underneath, you know, tinkering with something, changing the oil, the whole thing it doesn't collapse on me. Do I have a first aid kit? Do I know how to use it? Is there somebody with me that can deal with a catastrophic bleed if all of a sudden there is a genuine accident? Is the first aid kit buried somewhere in the bottom of the Land Rover or the vehicle? Or is it very easy to hand? Because you could take three minutes trying to find it, you know, Dumping out okay, interesting. Yes, half yes, your yes, kit. You yes, want it there yes. and you want everyone to know it's there. Yeah. Is your life hammer yeah. there? Is your extinguisher there? Because yeah, yeah. you've only got three minutes. Aha. Okay. So this is where the three minutes This thing is where comes the three in. minutes come in. You've got to plan. <clears throat> the other, then you think like, right, okay, so I know I can do it. It's a relatively safe route. I'm skilled. I'm confident. I'm trained to do it. Do I try and bite off more than I can chew? Do I decide, right, on this day, we're going to try and do 300 miles when realistically an experienced person will be saying you know 100 is, is is enough on that road in those conditions and the borders you're going to get stuck with but if you push 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 force yourself to drive into the night you don't have the right lights on the vehicle you're driving too fast it's all about you know how to avoid an accident now, i don't like using the whole health and safety thing yeah um it, it's a bit more than common sense you've got to kind of You've got to talk yourself through what you're going to be going through to sort of mitigate that three minute that's all you've got if it all goes wrong. Do you, if you don't have enough food with you, you might be encouraged to think, well, I've only got water. Yes, I could sleep with the vehicle. You know, I could sleep in the vehicle. I've got a tent. I have water, but I'm hungry. Right, well, I've got to make the next town. You know, I don't want to be stuck out here. And so rather than just thinking, do you know what? It's eight, it's getting dark. 
there's wildlife, there's, you know, people using the road that either aren't skilled or they don't have any lights, or even, you know, a cow and cart. It's so easy to run into the back of one of them. So it's making that decision to say, no, okay, well, I know that I can survive for three weeks without food, so why am I now pushing hard through the night to try and reach a town just so I can have dinner? Because within that time, big accident, three minutes, it's all over. And so you're constantly kind of doing this mm. assessment. Mm. What are the priorities? Because mm. if you know that ends within three minutes, that ends within three hours, that's three days, you can forget the rest. Yeah, I'll survive. Of course I'll survive 24 hours without eating. I'll worry about that in the morning. Might be a bit peckish, but I'll be alive and I'll be able to enjoy the next day. And that's kind of how my brain works. And, and you do that for each thing. And you then look at the shelter. Now I know there's probably a lot of talk within the, 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 off, uh, the overlanding community about roof tents. Never use them. I suppose the stuff I do is more, my overlanding trips are for work. And so I'm, I tend to go very light, relatively quickly. There's no kind of sightseeing as such. If I'm going to see something, it's a recce because a project or a team are going to pass through later or a film crew want to do something. I've never taken roof tents. There are obviously other issues like, you know, the, the max amount of weight you can put on a roof. I think for a Defender is 75 kilograms. And by the time you've put a roof rack up there and you put the roof tent up there and you've put yourself up there, you're <coughs> 250 kilograms. Yeah, 70, not... yeah, 75 kilograms when the vehicle's moving. When it's stationary, it's probably a lot more. But yeah. I mean that, yeah. But a there roof are... tent and a roof rack. Yeah. Pretty close to 75. Yeah. So kilograms. you're. So then it kind of makes it top heavy. The other thing is, if it's blowing an absolute hoolie, do you want to be stuck six feet further up in a tent that the scouts probably stopped using back in the 1950s? You know, they tend to be sort of a wax cotton, very heavy. You know, you would never see them at Everest Base Camp. You know, that's much more super lightweight, very taut, you know, geodesic, you know, wind deflecting kind of tents. And you've got a three ton truck sitting there. Well, I would sooner be behind it using this massive block of metal as my shelter because that's my second mm. priority. Mm. You don't want to be kind of in it getting hypothermic because the wind is howling through. The other risk with, with, with roof tents is vehicles have been known to catch on fire. Vehicles have been known to end up upside down. Or you end up sliding it into a ditch and all of a sudden it's a nice jaunty angle. Well, if your next priority, which is three hours, happens to be on fire, or it happens to be on the underside of your four by four, where's your shelter? And if it happens to be at a horrible angle or it's damaged or it's been hit by the wind, you don't want to rely just on a roof tent. You do need another form of shelter. You need to be able to grab something and say, right, it's all gone wrong. I'm not in immediate danger. I'm not bleeding to death. So I have my three minutes isn't a worry, but my three hours is my next worry. My shelter, grab it. Do I have the right kit to survive a night outside? If someone's, you know, literally, and this is what we did in the military. I was, uh, my first job, I was a helicopter mechanic with an Arctic warfare unit. And we were part of the rapid deployment unit from the British Army as, as part of the whole big NATO thing. And so we would go right up to the top of Norway at minus 40. And it was a classic thing they did with us. They took us on a survival, part of the Arctic survival training was to go into this huge snow-filled valley right up in the top of Norway. And we had all our kit rucksacks, we had tents, we had bivvies, we had stoves, we had everything. And they literally parked the, the big um, tract, um, they were called Haglands, big over snow buggies, they parked them in the valley and there were about 40 of us there 
And they said, right, just get out, stretch your legs, you know, have a cup of tea, you know, just stretch, stretch your legs and we've got a long way to go. And we got out, that's it, they buggered off and left us for 24 hours, just what we were standing in. Of course, we were not equipped. You had the basic, you know, we had no water with us because that was in our Bergens, uh, racksacks. We, we had a little sort of survival pouch of food and a silly little survival bag they gave us that looked like basically an eight foot square piece of cling film wrapped around a piece of cardboard. And we were convinced the cardboard had to do something because it took up about 90% of this package <laughs> that they gave us. And it was useless. So basically we had to take our, our jackets off, dig a snow hole, try and get some broken branches and live in this hole for 24 hours. And that's the reality of when you take vehicles out into an extreme environment. What happens if something went horribly, horribly wrong and you had to get out of that vehicle quickly? We always have grab bags, you know. Yes. A something you can grab with your immediate, this will keep me alive for 24, 36, 48 hours, oh, kind of whatever. Yeah. Um, but most of it is the clothing. If you don't have the right clothing, a lot of people will be 100% reliant on the vehicle and on the engine and on the fuel they put in the engine and the oil they put in the engine. And so if, if you've got to suddenly get out quick, for whatever reason, it's on fire and you suddenly find yourself standing there. If I stood in Siberia dressed like this, I don't think I'd even make three hours at minus 60. My hands would be numb within... Well, I did, well, I was there in February doing some, doing a recce and I did a, you know, the, the whole little YouTube, hold the camera, film myself. I could keep my hat because um, I didn't have a little remote thing. I had to press, you know, you've got to have bare, bare skin on an okay, yeah, iPhone yeah, skin. Yeah. I had to have bare flesh to touch yeah. it. One minute was the maximum I could keep my hand out of the glove for. But the problem is though, once that one minute was up and I put my hand back into the glove. It's freezing. I, be I could barely do anything with it. So if you had to zip up a jacket, no chance. Your hand is absolutely as near enough dead. It's so right. numb you can't feel it. So yeah, if I was outside and I, and I literally jumped out of our Nissan patrols dressed like this, I'd probably be a bit of a heap on the floor within 10 minutes. I'd probably be dead within the hour. So now I'm somebody who's, I've got this ambitious trip that I want to plan. And one half of me, because I went through this when I did my solo trip through the Kalahari. Mm -hmm. I did two of them. One was a failure. I turned back because things went not pear-shaped in a serious way, but mm -hmm. pear-shaped in a way that I thought, now the risk is too high. So yeah. I was able to say, this was risky to begin with. Now I'm just plain uncomfortable with the risk. Yeah. And the second time I was much better prepared. And I realized that the, my biggest risk was fire mm -hmm. because I'd lose my shelter. Yeah. And there were a lot of wild animals. Yeah. I'd lose my water yeah. very hot. So I'd be in trouble. So fire. So I had four fire extinguishers in the car. Mm -hmm. Still, I know what a car happens when it catches a light. I know of some people whose vehicle caught a light and they spent all their water trying to put it out and they ended up in the desert with no car and no water because yeah. they'd used the water to, yeah. you know, and they had, it was an electrical failure, so just yeah. reignited. At <clears> some <throat> point during that, hopefully, but obviously they didn't, they should have thought, okay, is that my shelter without that vehicle will i be dead what's going to kill me first in that particular environment they're in is it the lack of that shelter or is it the lack of water now had they thought hold it i can survive without that vehicle and certainly if they had something like you know they could grab things out the back yeah, and they toss they, them to one side they, they didn't they had, they had um, absolutely nothing at all and they and they were lucky to escape with their lives yeah. but water would be the next yeah the next one so they yeah I, I, with my, with my last Land Cruiser with the rooftop tent, because I don't like rooftop tents as a general rule. I, I just find them annoying for all of the reasons you've just, you've just, but 
it had a flip-up built-in tent, which was re- super quick and mm-hmm. super convenient and super everything. But I had a grab tent in the back because yeah. if I, it was that whole thing. You know, you slide off a road into a ditch, boom. Yeah. Very difficult to get yourself out. Yeah. And now it's getting dark. It's overnight. It's yeah. night. Where are you going to sleep? Yeah, you can't you sleep in a vehicle that's sitting at no. 30 degrees. No. How do you, you know, you can't. So I, I carried that, but that was a kind of a... And they can be really oh, small. Was a you know, it was a little, little cheap, as long as it was cheap. You know, just, cheap, cheap. just, yeah, you can buy them for like 20 quid. Mm. But that would, that's enough to, it's a life or death thing. So get back to my, my pre- previous thought was when somebody is, is, is thinking about an expedition and they're, part of them is saying, yeah, this is quite, this is quite a big step from what I'm used mm. to. How do they know, how do they measure when they've gone too far and are taking risks that are actually silly, unnecessary and... Uh, probably just down to experience. There can be a lot of naivety in, in, in thinking that you can conquer the world and actually you're not in such a, such a, um, a dangerous environment that you are. The, the strangest thing, and this is the, it's a strange psychology about tarmac or an area marks on the ground where a vehicle has been. It's, it's, it's really weird, but I was thinking about this. When, um, I think it was back in 2005, a colleague of mine just gave us a call and said, right, we're going to do a, a Mongol rally type banger car rally. And this is in the very, very early days when the Plymouth Dakar rally was kind of the first one to set off. And if ever you've seen any filming of that, he was the guy who filmed it. And he wanted to set up his own banger rally. But rather than going round kind of the very, very hugging the coast, the very, very western edge of Africa. He wanted to go slap bang through the middle of it. And so he said, back are you up for this? I went, do you know what? I, I, I was in one of those I needed a break moment. Things were just not going too well for me. And I thought, do you know what? Okay. And I had an old Rover 200. I don't know mm-hmm. if you recall them. The round hor- ones. Horrible old little four-door things. saloon with a 1.8 diesel Peugeot yeah. engine. Mm-hmm. Not designed for taking across the Sahara Desert. Okay. It had already failed its MOT. I sneaked it out the country and off we went. But we went in convoy, so there were 13 cars and there were probably 20 people. So there was a safety in numbers element. And off we went. And we were driving down through, right through the middle of Algeria. And it was a nice bit of tarmac. And it was, it was smooth. And do you know what? We were all relaxed. We were all calm. We didn't care. We had cars that had failed MOTs. They were useless. We hadn't done anything. All I'd done is I got a scrap of old sheet metal and sort of fabricated a sump to stop the because you know i had low profile tires on it i had a ground clearance of about four inches <laughs> the thing was not designed to be out there but because i was this particular stretch it was tarmac everyone felt really at ease with them and i just thought to myself okay if you stripped away that that bit of black stuff that we're driving on and even if you were quarter of a mile just to one side or the other and you couldn't see this tarmac road you would be in the biggest panic going you are slap bang in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You have vehicles that really shouldn't be there. You probably haven't got enough water, enough food. You've got no proper communications. You don't really know where you're going. You're just following this black line in the, in the road. And it was a really strange thing that the psychology of how safe you felt, yet your environment would kill you just as quickly being on that bit of tarmac as if you were half a mile to one side and you were in the pure desert. Mm. And so I think the only thing to tell you when it's all going a bit wrong is to is probably just through experience. You know, you get all these banger cars, you know, 400 teams head off to Ulaanbaatar every year and they all hack their way across Mongolia. It's incredibly remote, really, really remote. And there are so many tracks, you're kind of just following one and you're thinking, well, hold it. And then it splits and splits again and splits again. You always just keep following what you think is the main one. You don't know if it's actually 
taken you where you're supposed to be going or whether it's going to swing off in some complete dead end and then you've, you're out of fuel, food and water. And so, I, I don't know, I suppose it can only just come down to um, recognising where you are and then just thinking to yourself, OK, if I stripped away that tarmac, would I be happy carrying on? Yeah, OK. Yeah? Yeah. And I guess that only comes with experience because the youth will just go, oh, it's just fun, I'll just keep going and then mm. they do die. You know, when we did go through Algeria, they, towards the uh, Niger border, where it all, all the tarmac ran, runs out, even the gr graded gravel run, run, roads run out, and it is just, you're following the occasional post that the French put there 90 years ago, and you may or may not see these little posts marking every kilometre. Yeah, that's proper, proper desert, and in cars that really shouldn't be there, getting stuck every five minutes, and you see cars littered, mm. and you know that every car that's abandoned there was somebody with that car. They didn't just go there on its own. And there were probably mm. a lot of people never walked out of there, you know, so. The challenge, I think, is that a lot of people that, that, that want to do expeditions, A, won't do them because they're, they're worried, and maybe that's wise because they're, they're a little bit, you know, scared, and yeah. perhaps that's also wise. But others that are foolhardy and plastic, that they don't know that they don't know. Precisely. That's the risk. That's the bigger risk. But then again, if I think about some of the expeditions I took, I go back and think, what was I carrying with me? They were pretty high risk. Yeah. They were some very high risk. And were you and on I your own I, or was there, was there more than one vehicle? One vehicle, my wife and I, yeah. in a Land Rover. Do you have um, communications? No. So, Small box of spare parts. But? High lift jack and a spade. But you've probably, got, you've probably had enough training. You, knew had, you probably prepared the vehicle correctly. You probably didn't overload it. No, it was light. You probably, light, light, did, light. You probably didn't mess around with it too much by, you know, no. jacking up the suspension and adding huge amounts of surplus It was stock. <coughs> it was stock. It had good, really good shocks. That was it. Yeah. Nothing. I did nothing else to it. So as long as you've got a, high, a correctly prepared vehicle, you haven't messed around with it too much, you've not overloaded it, you've got the training to, to know what the, you know, the, the more likely faults are that if anything is going to happen, mm. you're not pushing hard and therefore, you know, if there's any areas that you're not sure of you either walk them first or you tiptoe through them or you you just you kind of like drive like a bit like an old granny to be quite honest that's mm. always the safest thing to do because it's amazing what vehicles will get through yes there are occasions where you've got to give it the beans otherwise it's not going to go through mm. a soft patch yeah there are too many times where and I well I'm going to go and see some lads later this evening who tried to beat the London to Cape Town record. Discovery 2, the same as we used. And I was, everything was, do we need this? No, you know, we, need, we, we knew we needed fuel because we had to be able to drive through the night from probably 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. We had to be able to have a, about a 12 hour range because you can't stop. There's no way we're gonna get, be able to get fuel. So I think I had uh, standard stock tank was about 95 litres, 40 litres auxiliary tank, that's 135, and we carried another 20. And the reason I will always carry spare fuel in jerry cans, even if you have huge amounts of re reserve, what's to say that those tanks slung relatively low underneath don't get punctured by mm. something? And if you find that they do, you've got your 20 litres reserve. If you find that you can get yourself to where the fuel is, but you can't get the vehicle to where the fuel is. And that's happened before in some African villages. You, know, you park down here, there is no fuel down here, but halfway up this hill, there's a guy selling fuel out the back of his shed. Well, you can't, 
take the auxiliary fuel tank out and drag it up there. You can't get quarter of a yes. mile long hose pipes down to it, so yes. you carry your 20 litres. So we had something like 155 litres of fuel. These guys were carrying 330 litres of fuel. They had basically, they just rebuilt the entire back end and put a huge truck fuel tank in. I think they had, I suppose, and this was just through experience, we had just 40 litres of water, 20 for the vehicle and 20 for us. But that was filtered water. So we could stop and filter anything. Literally, the filter, the fil these filtering jerry cans, and if you come across them, the Lifesaver jerry cans, the big blue ones, mm -hmm. they will filter, um, either a, there's either a 10,000 litre filter or a 20,000 litre filter. But it'll filter 20,000 litre of literally fresh toilet water. Mm -hmm. And I mean the worst sort of toilet mm -hmm. water. Mm -hmm. You can scoop it out, mm -hmm. lumps and all, mm -hmm. put it in this and get pure drinking water yep. out. Yep. So that meant we didn't have to carry <laughs> as much because we knew we'd better find some form of water certainly going and through yeah right africa but the other reason you had to filter it because if you didn't filter it you'd be dehydrated therefore you would drink more water therefore your three day rule would kick in because you're now drinking dirty water and if you drink if you eat food of a poor height you know poor quality or your personal hygiene's not good and you start throwing up you get dehydrated you and there you're then it's you your go, three days, three days kicks in but they carried 330 litres of fuel, they carried quarter of a tonne of tools and spares, they probably had 100 kilograms of water. They then messed around with the vehicle, I know there was a huge heavy roof rack, they had a uh, they had roof tent, they had big bull bar on the front. I'm probably guessing their vehicle was probably about 600 kilograms over gross vehicle weight. So of course, they're then trying to beat the London to Cape Town record via West Africa. So they've got a deadline of 10 and a half days to do 10,000 miles. So they're hooning it. They're trying to do 1,000 miles a day every day through West Africa. So of course, you're then taking big risks. You're barreling through areas, hitting potholes. They broke half shafts, they broke diffs, they snapped the chassis. Shock absorbers gave up, suspension gave up. The whole lot, in the end, it kind of conked out uh, on the Angola-Namibian border. So that was probably just a whole lack of experience, but they, mm. they hadn't kind of gone through the rule of three thing. So one, they were going, yes, it was a record attempt. So you kind of, you are going to enter into the, we're going to, we're going to be at risk of an accident. Yes, yes. But to lessen that risk, stick bloody huge spotlights on that vehicle, illuminate the whole world. Don't mess around with it too much. Um, don't make it too high, too top heavy, too, you know. And keep it light. Too, yeah, keep, it, keep light. it light. Know when you shouldn't be driving because you're too tired. Keep yourself hydrated because that um, reduces your, um, you know, awareness and thinking power and, and, and stamina by about 10%. Mm -hmm. Make sure you eat the right food so you're not throwing up, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole list of kind of things that you right. could see they were going to have a problem before they'd even set off because they hadn't gone through, right. you know, the priorities and what knock-on effect that could have if they made a wrong decision before they even left the country. Right, and your, your record attempt was yeah, 2009, you said? 2010. 2010. 2010. Uh, Ten and a half days. Discovery 2. Discovery 2. Nothing went wrong. Not even a puncture. Really? Not even a puncture? What tyres were puncture. you running? Uh, Pirelli all-terrain. Not, okay. not the best all-terrain tyre. No. You know, I mean, very... They offered sponsorship. I kind of accepted it. And then I, these things arrived, I thought, blimey, they're not much more than a road tyre. Really? But, apart from northern Kenya and some pretty potholed bits in Zambia, okay, there are potholes from probably eastern Turkey onwards until you probably get into Botswana, South Africa. But, for that bit, you didn't need an all-terrain tyre. 
you did need an all-terrain tyre for northern Kenya. What you certainly didn't need is a mud terrain, and that's where a lot of people go wrong. They kind of assume, I'm going to put mud terrains on, but we all know mud terrains, they're not brilliant on tarmac, they're not brilliant with handling, they're not brilliant with economy, so your fuel's going to go down, leaving you stranded. They're not brilliant in the wet. So, yeah, you can pick the wrong tyres and bang, 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 knock on effect. Three minutes, you've rolled the car because you picked the wrong tyres. <laughs> and, it, and that's kind of how it always works. Mm. So, yeah, I was a bit disappointed uh, when these uh, all-terrains turned up. But, my God. Uh, did they work? What's it like working with, just lastly, quick one. Yeah. Your Ranulf... For anybody who doesn't know, Randolph Fiennes is probably regarded as the world's greatest living explorer. Probably. Yeah. I mean, he's, the records he's done are oh. just unbelievable. Yeah. I don't. But now yeah. you're his right hand man. You his right hand man, and yeah. you 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 do a lot of equipment testing for him. I do. What is he like to work with? Is he extremely eccentric? Because his books are wonderful, but he seems to be a nutcase <laughs> of the of the nicest possible kind. Um. I'll give you a story, and this is not known. There's only probably about three or four people that know this, but it, it, it kind of sums up Ranulph Fiennes. Okay. One of the first projects I did with him was back in 1997 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Land Rover in 1998, because obviously it started in mm -hmm. 1948. The plan was to drive three vehicles from London to New York the entire way. And that meant the long way round, sort of like a Ewan McGregor long way round, but a much tougher version. So these vehicles would drive continuously under their own steam without any form of outside assistance the whole way. So from London down to Dover, swim to France, fit floats on them, fit a prop on the back, engine is now driving the prop, off we go. The only way to get through Far Eastern Siberia, to get to the very edge of Siberia and the Bering Straits, which mm -hmm. is just mm -hmm. opposite Alaska, mm -hmm. would be to do it in the dead of winter. So where I was, where it's ice where you can cross. Yep, all the frozen right. rivers turn into sort of like icy motorways. Okay. So minus 60 all the way through Siberia, then get to the frozen Bering Straits, part frozen, part water, drive, swim, drive, swim, all the way to Alaska, swim round up the Yukon River, get to the main road network and all the way down to New York. Anyway, so that was the plan. So in 97, 12 months before, myself, Ranulph Fiennes, couple of Land Rover mechanics, we flew two Land Rover Defender 110s to the very edge of the Bering Straits on the Alaskan side, a place called Wales. And one of them was an early Wolf prototype, the military one. So both 110 hardtops. And we had, you know, big heaters in them. We had huge, great Goodyear balloon tyres on them. We were testing them. And we had Mat -track, Max Tracks, you know, the big triangular track system. Mm -hmm. uh, an American company. These were very early prototypes. They failed horribly. Uh, they just didn't have it. But when they were working, they, they were quite good. So off we went and we, and we did all our testing. We basically proved after being there for three months, living out on the ice and working, living you know, out of the little tiny hamlet there and going out every day and camping out, we proved we could, we could um, do the most difficult part of this whole trip. But right at the end, there was a little airstrip there. One of the guys, a Canadian who was part of the team, uh, who dreamt up the whole thing many years before when, when the he first heard that the, the Channel Tunnel was going to be built linking mm -hmm. France and, uh, and England. Um, he had to head off, so I took him out to the airstrip on a snowmobile and off he'd gone. The others were trying to, they'd already gone out right onto the edge of the ice to try and find a clearing so they could get the, the amphibious part and it was, a, it was basically a Kevlar catamaran. And it was all very complex, so basically you tow this thing like a big trailer behind you and when you come to water you drop it in, drive on, 
plug the engine into a power uh, a hydraulic pump through a power takeoff at the back mm -hmm. that turns paddle steamer blades and off you go so it wasn't sort of floats in the water yeah. it was kind of this this monstrosity you dragged behind you so they'd gone off ahead to try and work out how we get through the ice the, these pressure ridges and these ridges are as high, some of them are as high as a two-story house you know if not higher you know 30, 40, 50 feet high. So trying to find a gap to get through to the water was right, really difficult. Anyway, I dropped Gordon off. They were already out there. I chased off after them and I'd got there an hour later. And when I got there, they'd found a clearing, but there was a huge block of ice and it was kind of hanging out over this Bering Straits. It was like minus 20, it was March, it was bitter absolutely bitterly cold. We knew there were polar bears roaming around. I'd, one of the guys lent me a, um, uh, a 44 Magnum that I had strapped on my side <laughs> to scare off polar bears. Anyway, there was a cameraman with us as well, and, and, and he was there, and Ranulph Fines and the Land Rover Mechanics are standing right out on the edge of this block of, blo um, block of ice. And it was the size of a bungalow. It was huge, and they're standing right on the edge, chipping away like this, chipping away, chipping away. So I had some soup with me and I'm serving. I said, come on, boys, you know, you've been at it for a couple of hours. Come and have a hot, hot, hot meal while you're doing. Anyway, they came down and then they started up again. And then the cameraman, this guy, this Dutch guy, Keys Toofed, and he climbed Everest with Brian Blessed. Mm -hmm. And he'd done loads of other, he's really, really good adventure cameraman. He said, Mac, he says, um, I've been looking at this block of ice. I think it's not actually part of the main ice flow. I think it's a separate block sitting on top of the ice. And in fact, two thirds of it is hanging out over, over the sea. So if we don't chip the weight at the front, we lose the weight at the back, he'll eventually become top heavy and fall in. So I looked at it and we kind of scraped the bottom. I said, I think you're right, you can see a crack down the bottom. So I said to the Land Rover guys, I said, look, Keys has just spotted that we should lose the weight at the back. And they all came, yeah. So anyway, so now there are five of us working on the back of this thing. Picks and shovels and chopping and chopping and chopping. Anyway, so, Ran, I think you should come and do this. Yeah, whatever, boys, whatever, whatever, he says, and he's carried on and he's chipping away, chipping away. I thought, come on, Ran, you know, this, this, is, this makes sense. Yeah, whatever, okay, you carry on if you know best. So we're chipping away. Anyway, we're working quite fast and we're losing weight and we can sort of hear creaking and groaning. We said, Ran, we think, we think but this... But he's on the edge now. Yeah, 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 he's perched out right over the, edge, over the sea. So we said, and it's not much of a drop, you know, it's only, you know literally mm. it looks like it's mm. almost resting mm. on the water, but it's still pretty cold water. Mm. And we said, um, we think this is going to go. Anyway, he obviously took some notice because he's now come to the back and he's just chopping away, literally try, trying to take a building down by just chopping at the roof. <laughs> well, you normally just chop the walls out and the whole lot yeah. comes crashing yeah. down. So he's chopping away. Anyway, he's swinging this flipping axe around and he's only his feet are about here, just above me. And the other boys are going, whoa, you nutter, you're going to take our bloody heads off. So they stepped outside. I said, Ran, come on, you know, everyone's kind of agreed that it's we lose the weight at the back and he slammed his axe down i'm going to get so much trouble with this thing on camera <laughs> and he slammed his axe down and he looked at us and he he says i've spent more time on ice on sea ice than any other person in living history if there's something about sea, sea ice i don't know then it's not worth bloody knowing i went whoa okay okay that told us then okay so i <laughs> so I kind of had this sort of little sort of little devil came up in my head. I thought, <laughs> bloody ignorant, silly old stubborn. He was too focused. He was, yeah. too, you know, he didn't yeah. think outside the yeah. box. He just yeah. thought, right, yeah. I've got to lose it. I'm just going to chop the whole bloody lot up. It would take days to chop it up. It was massive. Anyway, so he's swinging this bloody axe around, and the others had kept out the way for having their heads chopped off. And I had my pick, and so I sort of ducked right behind him. So this axe is swinging this way and this way. 
And I just went, chop, chop, chop like this. And I'm chopping away. And all of a sudden, of course, it went. And he's standing at the back. And the thing's about 40 feet long, like a catapult. Ping! <laughs> That's it. He's now airborne, heading out into the Bering Straits. <laughs> and off he's gone. And so, anyway, so bloody, I, I, we kind of knew it was going to happen. So we just thought, oh, well, we told him. He just didn't listen. So off he went. So we, we had a rope, obviously, with two Land Rovers there. So we chucked this rope out because he's landed on this ledge before he, you know, he's completely submerged. Anyway, we hauled him in. He didn't say a word. We had a bit of trimming up to do to get this thing through a little bit on the edge. And, he, and I said, right, because the rule is shelter. His shelter is now wet. sopping wet <laughs> and it's blowing a gale and it's minus 20. So immediately you strip to nothing, everything off. Right, Chaz, I need your jacket. Charles, I need your fleece, you know, donate one thing, get that engine, you know, I think the engines are already running or something, get him inside, strip him off. He would not have it, he would not have it. And he carried on for another two hours and you could almost hear him sort of, <laughs> sort of <laughs> creaking and crashing as he's starting to free up. Yeah. And that's the sort of guy he is. He's just mission, me, there, destroy, you know, me get from here to there, I'm going that way. And so when I did the North Pole thing with him, you got the same problem, you got these pressure ridges. And I, I said to him, well, why don't you, because it, you know, it was an unsupported trip. My job was to get him to the start point and then pick him up if he made it or rescue him if he didn't. Unfortunately, it became a bit of a, he wouldn't like to say it was a rescue mission, but it kind of was. He, we had to get him out of there quickly. And I said, well, why don't you, you know, set back and go, right, there's a 30 foot wall in front of me. Why don't I see if, you know, 100 feet one side or the other, it might, be a, it might be a bit lower or there might be a way around. He said, by the time you've done that, you exhaust so much energy looking for somewhere slightly easy, you might as well just get on with it. And so that's the kind of guy he is. He's absolutely blinkered. And perhaps that's why he's... And that's the only reason he's so successful. Because nobody else <laughs> of any sanity would do it. <laughs> they would, they, they yeah. would stop and, and, and try and figure it all out, uh -huh. but not, not Rand. No, no, he's uh -huh. just bang. And I don't think there's any person I've ever met that could do that, that has that sheer focused drive that there is one goal without even considering anything else. Literally, I'm... Um, drive. Yeah. So, man is a March hare, but I love him for it. He's brilliant. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Mm. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Adventure podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. To find out more information, check out thenextjourney.net. Join us each Sunday 